Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Where they worshiped, that's where they gathered. Boniface one time uh, was kind of tired of a particular festival which included sacrificing a child every year at the Oak of Thor. So you know what Boniface did? He chopped down the tree and made a, uh, a church to St. Peter out of it. And the people stood there dumbstruck, waiting for Thor to send down his lightning. And when Boniface just never was struck by lightning, they all converted to Christianity. And so the, the idea is, for Boniface, there's only one Lord. It's Jesus. Who do these people think they worship? this pagan god that they're going to sacrifice children to him, I'm cutting this tree down and I'm taking that tree and I'm making it um, into a chapel. That's actually how Christmas trees began out of that whole story. Um, I love that. Cutting down pagan nonsense and making something Christian out of it. Now my question this morning is this. What was Boniface's belief system that led him to have the audacity to cut down Odin's tree and make a chapel out of the wood. I think that what motivated him is that he actually believed these three words. Are you ready? Jesus is Lord. He believed that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, Thor is nothing, and that Jesus, as a Lord, deserves more and more ground. And Boniface said, it's my job to go out and take more ground for Jesus, after all, the last thing he said in Matthew is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make Christians out of the nations. Let's not keep that in flowery language. Let's go see what it says. Jesus said, go to the nations and make them followers of me because I have all authority. We've lost that, and I think the reason that we've lost that gusto is because we've been told that before Jesus comes back and wins, we've all really got to lose. That's the prevailing opinion of most people. Most people, when it comes to the end times, they may not know what the theological technical term of it is, but the real term for it is pessimism. Jesus has got to lose big before he wins. And as we've been going through the book of Revelation, there are two things I've been trying to get across. Number one, that this is a book of symbols. Symbols that represent a real history that happened and symbols that represent real things that are true. And we have a tendency to take a symbolic book and make it literal. And because we've done that, we've led to the second thing that I've been trying to attack, which is pessimism. And what I've been trying to say to you through the book of Revelation is this, that because Jesus is Lord, the future is bright for the church. You might as well believe it and get on board. And what I said a couple weeks ago is, your soul is impacted and affected by what you attend to. And so many of us attend to negativity. That's all we can see. And what I'm trying to say to you is that the overwhelming teaching of the New Testament 
is that Jesus has ascended to God's right hand where he sits and he waits for God to make everything his footstool. And the sooner we believed it, and the sooner that we attended to that truth, the sooner we would be being, we would be seeing victory. I really do believe that. I, I shared this with a group of people this week, and somebody asked me, are you naturally an optimist or a pessimist? Y'all answer this question. Is Drew naturally an optimist or a pessimist? Hey, no question is there. Drew is naturally a pessimist. So it must actually be that against my nature, I've been convinced of something from the Scripture. And I think that Revelation 19 fits right in with it. Something gave Boniface the confidence just to go up and chop down a pagan tree and make a church out of it. And I believe that if we had the same gusto, the same faith, the same trust in the Word of God, if we believed what God said more than what we attend to, I think we might see victory in our lives and victory for the church. We join in the victory. And so let me remind you again, we're looking at a book of symbols, and people who want to take Revelation literally really, really have to be super picky about what they take literally. So if Jesus is coming back literally on a white horse, then Jesus is literally coming back with a what coming out of his mouth? Choose. Or don't choose and realize that they're both symbols and get after the, the deeper truth that is intended here. So I'm just going to cover three or four scenes of Jesus's victory today and at the end of it just kind of tie it together as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth next week. I've got to go quick. There's so much that's controversial in here we could stay in here for six months and I'm not going to do that. So we're going to just tap over the surface. I'm going to give you a new way of looking at it and then you can go back and really begin to study this for yourself. We started with Revelation 19:11 with this scene where heaven is opened and behold, there's a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges the nations and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Let me make a comment about that. No one knows but himself. This book is really influenced by the Hebrew understanding of knowledge and so probably what it means is not that anybody that we don't literally know what his name is. It's that nobody can own that name but him. He's the only one who can have that name. He's the only one who knows that name. Because the name is faithful and true. The name is the Word of God. The name is the Son. The name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know what the name is. We just can't own the name. Only Jesus can own the name. And so what's going on in this first scene where we have this white horse coming through uh, with this army behind him? What we have is we have in symbolic form the picture of what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. That is, Jesus goes out to conquer the nations with his word with that sword coming out of his mouth. The sword coming out of his mouth is his word with which he strikes the nations. And this is common Old Testament and New Testament description of the work of prophets and preachers. For instance, Isaiah 11:3 3 and 4, talking about the Messiah, 
It says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. It's his word that does the work. We see this in Paul in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Jesus says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then we're told to put something on. What are we told to put on? That's why we're the, 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 the army behind him. He's going out into the world, extending his dominion, and we're to dress up like soldiers and get in behind him. And that's exactly why it says that we've got this helmet, we've got a breastplate, and then we have a sword. What is the sword? It's the word of God. Do you realize that the Bible is an attacking weapon? All that we do is tend to defend our defeated, tender consciences with it. And it definitely has that job. It's got that job for me. But the Bible is an attacking weapon. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any what? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When you're sharing the Bible with people, you're sharing something that can cut them up. It can tear down all of their pretenses. It can tear down all of their arguments. And with just a phrase, it can break a heart. It's broken your heart, hasn't it? And it's broken my heart. There are times I'm too smart for my own good sometimes. And if there's something I don't want to do, I can justify it in my own mind. And I can share those justifications with my wife. And on occasion throughout our marriage, she's just answered all those justifications with a Bible verse and laid me low. If Isaiah 49, talking about the ministry of the, the Messiah when he comes. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from his womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Or how about the prophets of God? Hosea 6, 4 through 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. In other words, when the prophets spoke the word of God, they brought judgment into being a sword that tore apart all of the enemies of God. This is exactly what we see going on in Matthew 24 when it says after the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of Jerusalem, it says that God will send his angels out to gather his elect from the four winds. And we think, well, that's got to be those things with wings going out. No, angel can be translated either as angel or messenger. And so what God is doing is he's sending out his angels everywhere to go and win his people. And as Paul says, to tear down strongholds. We keep our Bibles dull. We think that we need to argue with the reasoning of men. We think we need to argue people with statistics. We think we need to argue people with all kinds of things that may get them on our side. And at the end of the day, we just let the Bible sit closed 
saying nothing from the Scripture to people. In our own day, I, I, just, I don't want to like pick on people, but we don't say what the Bible says. And we should say what the Bible says, right? If, well, I got to move on. Say what the Bible says. If the Bible calls an act degrading, don't go, well, I guess it could be love. If the Bible calls something murder, don't go, well, I guess it's... If the Bible calls it something, call it that. At the same time, if the Bible doesn't call something sin, don't you call it sin. Just say what the Bible says. When you're arguing with people, tell them what the Bible says. Tell them God's perspective. Because you know what it is, spiritually speaking? It's a sword. And so what happens is, Jesus sends out, he comes riding on a white steed with his sword coming out of his mouth, with his people dressed in their armor before him. He's dressed in white. I've told you this before. If you go to a fight dressed in white, it's because you know you're going to win. And Jesus has a tattoo on his leg, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's so confident in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, there's this angel that says, all right, the fight's getting ready to begin. All right, uh, vultures, y'all come swing in because we're about to give you a lot to eat. That's the confidence with which they went out into the world. That's what gave St. Boniface the chutzpah, the gusto, to go chop down an Odin tree and make a church out of it. And what happens is at this point, when that happens, it says that the false prophet... Now, we've said who the false prophet is. It's the ancient system of Judaism and the beast. Who is the beast? Nero, that Roman government, both of them are thrown into the lake of fire. Basically, what happens is the beast who had been tutored by Satan and this false prophet who had been tutored by Satan, both of them to destroy God's church, are now chucked into this lake of fire by Jesus so that the church is no longer under their thumb. And then something else happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. And again, the I feel like, and I'm, I'm not, if we just take off all of our spectacles and just look at it and look at the scripture, I think we'll see something different than we've been taught to see. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This is, again, one of those things where I say, all right, pick your literal thing. Because everybody says that has to be a literal thousand years. Okay, then where was the key and the chain hanging before the angel got them? And is the devil really a dragon? And was he literally picked and chucked into a pit? No, 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 no. But a thousand years, that's literal. It doesn't make any sense, y'all. Especially if you understand the way that numbers work in the scriptures. Thousand in this time was sort of like million in our time. It's just talking about something that's too big to count. For instance, in the Psalms where it says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills... Does that literally mean he doesn't own the cattle on hill 1001? 
To say that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills means that the Lord owns the cattle where? Everywhere. Too high to count. So we'll just say a thousand. If I say I love you a million times, I'm just saying you can't get your hands on how much I love you. Or when it says to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, does that mean that a thousand and one years he gets confused by? I can't shrink that down. No. It means that a second, the Lord can focus on it as if it's a million years long. And a million years long, he can look at it as if it's a second that went by yesterday. In other words, the Lord is the Lord of time. So when it says literally a thousand years here, we need to realize that something else is going on. That for a long time, something's going to happen. And what is that something that's going to happen for a long time? The devil is going to be bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. And if you read too much into this, you misread it. Because you're like, Drew, that says the devil is bound. That means that he can't do anything. This is going to be a golden age. Now, let's read this in the context of the Bible. For instance, Jesus says of his present ministry, using the same Greek words when he's casting out demons, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Listen to this. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may indeed plunder his house. Throughout the New Testament, this idea is there everywhere that Jesus disarmed the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's in Colossians 2. Um, Or how about this? He's bound, which means he can't do anything. Don't say that being bound means he can do something. Well, how about this? 2 Peter 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, if I was to literally read that, it sounds to me like the instant that the the angels fell into sin, God chained them up and has them chained until the judgment. That's literally what it says, right? Question, between the time angels fell and the judgment seat of Jesus, have demons done anything? So then maybe there's something different going on. It says the same thing in Jude. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in chains under gloomy darkness uh, until the judgment of of the great day. Again, demons are chained and held in chains until judgment, but they seem to be very active. So when it says here, that Jesus bound Satan for a thousand years, it doesn't mean that he wrapped him up so he could not do anything for literally a thousand years. It means that Jesus has Satan under his control for the length of the period of the church. And what is it specifically that the devil, although he can do a lot of things, what specifically is the thing that he cannot do? Look at what it says in verse 3. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not what? deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended now if we read that in the context of revelation he's he's the devil had deceived the the false prophet the devil had deceived the beast now those were out of the way and perhaps the devil wants to go and deceive someone else so that they can then be the enemies of the church and what is being said here is Jesus has made it so that while the devil is active, the devil can no longer amass all the governments of the world against the church. 
Now, if you go to verse 7, this is even more understood if you look there. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Do you see that? So Satan's work of deception that he can no longer do is that until he is released, he can no longer uh, make the nations gather together against the church to destroy it. And that's going to last for this however long period that's just here called a thousand years. You follow me? And then what else happens during that thousand years? And remember, so much of our thinking about the end times is wrapped up in this word millennium, and it only occurs here in the Bible. And we don't read it in context. Let me show you one more thing that's interesting about the context here. You ready? Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there are some people who have come to life and have reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If you read this in the context of Revelation, you'll notice that there's only one group of people who come to life and rule with Jesus for a thousand years. That is those who had not worshipped the beast. Who is the beast? Rome and Nero. All right, had not taken its image or received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. In other words, there's pretty much only one group of people who can qualify for what's happening in the millennium now. And that is those who lived when? Then. So there's something different going on here. What is the different thing going on here? It's this, that in Revelation chapter 6, we had these martyrs. Lo and behold, here are some martyrs. The martyr said, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? They were repeated again during the, uh, that happened during the six, the seven seals. That was repeated during the, the uh, seven trumpets. Lo and behold, these martyrs show up again asking, how long is it going to be? And their prayer is the thing that's motivating God to all of this action. Those Christians who had died in the first century under the hands of the Romans and under the hands of the Jewish aristocracy, they were crying out before God, God, how long until you vindicate us? And lo and behold, in Revelation 20, in John's vision, it is those people who are exalted and now vindicated. Now, I say all that to say this. We make too big a deal of the thousand years, y'all. It's not. It's literally about them. Now, it's not just about them, but do you see my point? Have you ever noticed that it's just those guys who reign with Jesus for a thousand years? That means that they sit vindicated while Jesus expands his church over the earth. So what does this binding of Satan mean? It means several things. It means that those who trusted God during this awful period are now, uh, their blood has been avenged on the beast and on the false prophet, that is Nero in Rome, and their blood is avenged on the, the Jewish aristocracy and the temple system that was killing them. What did Jesus say? All the blood of the martyrs and the prophets is going to fall on Jerusalem. 
They've been vindicated and now they've been raised to sit with Jesus. Now, they're not alone because the Bible teaches some more things that are interesting. The Bible also teaches that when we become believers, we also reign with Christ. I mean, my goodness. What does Ephesians 2 say? But you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and what you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We used to walk according to that spirit. Uh, we were by nature children of wrath, but God, rich in mercy, great in the love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. How clear does it have to be that we now reign with Jesus? We are in him. Just like these souls in Revelation were vindicated because they did not take the mark of the beast, when we are made alive together with Jesus, we sit with him too. In other words, what is this thousand years? This thousand years is the long-term age of the church where the gospel of Jesus, who has all authority, is being spread over all the earth. This is why Jesus says little things like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, although it's the smallest of all the seeds. When it planted, it becomes the what? The what tree? The largest tree. Or how about Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like leaven, which once it gets in a bag, what does it do to all of it? Leavens it. In other words, follow me here. What Revelation 20 is teaching is, and what Revelation 19 and what Revelation 21 and 22 is going to be teaching is not some kind of passive optimism where everything is going to be great, so let's just sit here. It teaches a very active optimism. That is, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, so go and make disciples of all the nations. As you do it, they will actually be discipled. The word of God will accomplish its purpose. You can go out there and speak it, and it will cut people down and destroy strongholds, and people will be resurrected again by faith in Jesus, and it will be awesome. Or you can believe that everything is going to be bad and sit and just suck on your thumb in defeat. Choose. It's the faithful here who are vindicated. And that's why John says their souls have come to life and they're reigning with God. And then it says this, explaining another conundrum here. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I'm just trying to read this with you as best I can, okay? Revelation 26 Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. There's this idea of a first and second resurrection. What is that talking about? Now, some people will argue, and if you're not familiar with this, just let it wash over you. What some people will argue is that Jesus comes literally back. He destroys his... Um, enemies. He sets up a literal reign in Jerusalem uh, and there is a first literal resurrection of people. And then there's a thousand year reign and then there's a resurrection of everybody at the end of that thousand year reign. And one of the reasons they believe that is because you can't use resurrection language for anything but resurrection. Whereas what I believe, and you'll just have to reread this and see if you can get it for yourself, that the first resurrection is becoming a Christian and the second resurrection is the full one at the end. 
Now, why do I say that? Because Siri cannot make that sense of that either, all right? Why do I say that? You're like, because Drew, I thought resurrection had to mean resurrection. Well, it, in one sense, it, it does. Flip with me to, to John chapter 5. Who wrote Revelation? Okay, just making sure you remembered that. John chapter 5. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and what? Is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? Live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man do not marvel, for an hour is coming, and is not now, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is an hour that is now here, where the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and live. What does that sound like? Salvation, couched in terms of resurrection, and then... There's a literal resurrection at the end. This is exactly what John is speaking of in Revelation 20. Now, I may have lost some of you, but I'll recap it all at the end. That the first resurrection in that thousand years is when people who are dead in their sins are made alive by Jesus and they come to go and reign with him. And then at the end, when he finally does come back in judgment, there's a full resurrection of all to the great white throne, which is what is there in verse 11 of chapter 21. Chapter 20, excuse me. And so resurrection language is used a lot of places in the Bible for describing people coming to Jesus. I just quoted Ephesians 2, and you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, God did what? Made you alive with Jesus and seated you with him in the heavenly places. So here's the... The, the picture of what's happening in Revelation 19.11 through Revelation 20. Just to sum it all up. In the destruction of the temple and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, two things received their death blow. The false prophet, Babylon, that we've identified as Jerusalem. Babylon looked like a priest in Revelation 17. This false prophet and this beast that is, Nero and everything he represents are really uh, given their death blow. You're like, Rome lasted 400 years. Yeah, but what killed Rome? Christians. <laughs> Christians did. All right? And so the beast and Jerusalem received their death blow so that the, the, the two things that the devil was deceiving are taken out of the way. The devil is bound up so that he can deceive the nations no longer. And now that they're out of the way, Jesus, who has received all authority in heaven and on earth, he and his church can go forward with the word of God, that is the sword, and make disciples of all nations until all of them are discipled. That doesn't mean every single person will become a Christian. It just means that the world will basically, if we just get on the ball and get working, the world will be Christianized. 
and that, that, that will be great. And then, look at verse 7 in chapter 20. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And all those who were frustratedly living under this Christianized society will be deceived, will be gathered to him, uh, and they'll march against the church. And in one fell blow, fire will come from heaven and will destroy them. And then that will lead into the great white throne judgment, verse 11, where Jesus will sit down and some books are opened and he will judge the good and he will judge the wicked. Easy. I'm kidding, it's not easy. And there are other legitimate ways that godly people look at that, but that's the way that I look at it, that the thousand years, people are now being raised to life with Christ. If we had eyes to see it, you, could, you would see that the church is on the ascendancy and not on the decline. Now, I can't speak of the future of America, but I can speak of the future of the world. It's bright. It's bright. It's just, are, are you going to get on board or are you not? Are you, are you going to join the winning side and then go out and use the word as a sword to cut down and then, and not cut down in some literal way, but to, to break down strongholds so that people turn to the Lord and then nations turn to the Lord? You know, we can say wicked things like it's beginning Pride Month here in the United States, and we can say the gay agenda is just winning the world. No, it's not. In Ghana a few years ago, they outlawed sodomy. Do you know why? Because the church is growing in Africa. The church is growing in South America. The church is growing. And you know what? The church could grow here in Manning if you would take your axe and cut down a bunch of Thor oaks and build churches out of them. And step into situations where people are adulterous, right, and unloving, and are cheaters, and sinners, and laugh and chortle in their victory, thinking that they're on the winning side, and just speak the word of God to them. And remind them of what they already know, that Jesus is on his throne, and he's going to judge you unless you repent and turn to him. And it'll lead to this final judgment where Jesus sits as judge over all. So how can we apply this? There's a lot in there. And I didn't cover all the holes. I didn't cover all the bases. There's a lot of things still to cover, but that's the general picture I wanted to give you today. How can we apply this? Well, first of all, we need to be about sharing the gospel under Christ's authority. In any given situation where we have the opportunity to share the gospel, the question as far as our willingness comes down to this. Who has authority, that person or Jesus? And so who should we fear, that person or Jesus? And I'm not talking about being a jerk and being rude. We need to do it winsomely and wisely and lovingly and carefully and thoughtfully, but we need to be sharing the gospel because Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, so you need to go and make disciples. We need to be sharing the gospel with our lives. We need to be opening our homes. We need to be reaching out to people because Jesus is Lord. Secondly, we need to actually 
do what the, the woman in Proverbs 31 does, and that is how does she approach the future? She smiles at it. We need to smile at the future. I mean, goodness gracious. It is Pride Month, and we're going to think this, this whole world is going to hell. Did you not say the same thing back in the 70s when they um, passed abortion laws? What's happening now? Huh? They're turning it back. Because there were a bunch of people who believed that God told the truth and dug in their heels, and what's happening now? Everybody in Hollywood's asking, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Justice. Because Jesus reigns. What would happen if we just, in love, went out and tried our best, as best we can with the gifts that we have, love on people and share the truth with people? We might actually believe what the Bible says about folks trapped in that kind of lifestyle, that they actually are miserable. It says in Romans 1 that people who practice such things not only know they're deserving of death, they, they know it. And so we need to step in with a word of life. That's, is that unloving? No, that's not unloving. Get your mind straight. We need to receive comfort from this truth that all those who die serving Jesus will end up on the throne next to Jesus. There's no way this turns out badly for us because our Lord rules and reigns over all things. So, Emmanuel Baptist, chin up. Chin up. Stop attending to the negativity because it'll, it'll shape the way you view the world and it's not biblical. The biggest question in the world isn't whether the Democrats or the Republicans are going to ascend to power. None of them have power. Jesus has power. And the, the quicker we separated ourselves from that nonsense and separated our emotions, whether we're happy or fretful from that nonsense, the sooner we'd be a sword in the hand of our master. That is an idol in our area. That is an idol in this church. Our emotions do with what Rush is saying that day. And he's fine. It's fine. It's, Jesus is in charge. And we serve him and we have his commission. Get your chin up. Secondly, let's go and in peace and in love and with wisdom and thoughtfulness, share the gospel with the people that God puts in your path. You know, you've got plenty of people in your path. You don't have to leave your path, do you? Plenty of people in your path who need the gospel. Share it with confidence and realize there's no way this turns out badly for us. Next week, we'll look at the new heavens and the new earth. We'll wrap this thing up. I'll preach on Father's Day. Then I'll be gone for six weeks. And when I come back, we'll look at the gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Help us to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As Mr. Ron makes his way up here, let's stand. And let's contemplate the title of this song. What is it? There is no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's sing now as if Jesus is Lord of all. When we walk with the Lord in the light.
have the day's benediction. After we hear the benediction, we'll have a moment of silence. While we are silent, you can just pray to seal this message on your heart. Contemplate what was said. When the music begins, you'll be dismissed. Today's benediction is hopefully coming on the screen. Hey, there we go. This is from Philippians 3. May, may you all be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Amen.